Our reading today is from Romans 13, starting at chapter, um, at verse 1 through to 7. And that can be found in the Pew Bibles in front of you on page 1140. So reading chapter 13 of Romans. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of, of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time in governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we can come before you this evening in worship and in praise. Thank you that you're a, a good God who is amongst us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts and minds which are submissive to you and which look to you as their God and as their Saviour. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Tonight we're starting a new series, and it's a series entitled, I Can't Become a Christian Because... And the first of the series tonight, appropriately on Remembrance Sunday, is entitled, I Can't Become a Christian because Christians have supported wars. Um, the 20th century was a rude awakening for many Western intellectuals. So at the beginning of the 20th century, many believed that mankind was now on the verge of a new era of peace and prosperity, because we were children of the Enlightenment. Two world wars started by enlightened Western Europeans and tens of millions of deaths disabused them of that notion. World War II was then followed in the second half of the century by around another 100 separate wars which waged on in various countries, showing just how wrong that view was that we were so enlightened. The form of war changed. The way war happened and took place changed quite dramatically. So it changed from being traditional nation-to-nation -nation state wars and state armies through to being guerrilla wars and wars aimed directly at civilians. 
but it carried on, and it carries on today. So between 2014 and 2016, half a million people died in war. So war is still a big, big problem. It's a far bigger problem than sugar in our soft drinks, plastic in our oceans, or even, dare I say it, Brexit. <laughs> and the Bible tells us where the problem lies. The Bible says this about humanity in Romans chapter 3. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. So it's a good question to ask, should Christians ever support war? And which war is it right to support, if the answer is yes? Do we only support defensive wars? How on earth is that even possible in an age of terrorism? How do you do that? And didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek? Now, it's a huge topic, and it's impossible to address in one talk with a whole bunch of questions that come behind it, which I can guarantee we will not cover. So all we can do is focus on some broad foundations, some important principles for Christians who are asked, should we be supporting war? And that hopefully will answer some of the questions en route. And those principles are basically three. They start with an always, a never, and a sometimes. An always, a never, and a sometimes. So firstly, uh, this is why I avoid technology. Right, firstly, always pursue peace, but not at any price. Always pursue peace, but not at any price. At the start of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells you what your character should be like as a believer, as a Christian, as a disciple. And that's the Beatitudes, all those blessed are sayings. And in verses 8 and 9, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So his thought flows from purity of heart across to peacemaking in the first instance. So if you're pure of heart, if your heart has been renewed by God the Holy Spirit, then it naturally follows that you should be a peacemaker, that you will be a peacemaker. Peacemaking is what motivates and enables you to, to please God, to honor him, to show that you have a pure heart. And we must seek to make peace wherever we possibly can as Christians. But it can't happen in this life. So we look forward to a total and a final peace. We look forward to when Christ returns, when, as Isaiah says, nation will not take up sword against any other nation, nor will they even train for war anymore. So we look forward to that. But in the meantime, Christ calls you to be a peacemaker at home, in church, and in your community, because our God is a God who brings ultimate peace. But it is not peace at any price. It's not appeasement. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and so on. Now, what he's talking about there is the fact that the gospel, the truth, would bring conflict. Very naturally, it will bring conflict. And he was saying, that's fine. 
because it's not peace at any price. We cannot sacrifice the truth of the gospel, the message of reconciliation and peace with God as our judge, just to maintain peace and unity on this earth, regardless of whether it's in the family, in the church, or in social media. So this means, for example, that it is wrong to be quiet about your faith at home just because you're trying to keep the peace. The circumstances might mean it's wise to do so at times. It might mean that you, you don't want to inflame a situation unnecessarily. But as a general principle and fundamentally, it would be wrong to be quiet just to keep peace. The principle fundamentally basically is you don't make peace by committing a greater evil. And, not, and denying the gospel is the greater evil. So that's principle one, always pursue peace, but not at any price. That's the always. This is the never. Principle two, never get your enemies mixed up. Never get your enemies mixed up. Now, there are three institutions that we are all naturally part of, right? Institution one, that God has designed into society. Institution one is the family. Institution two is the church. Institution three is the state. You're a citizen, you're a family member, you're part of a church. So in the family, God has made parents responsible for caring for one another and for raising their children. In the church, God has made his people responsible for preaching the gospel and for making and nurturing disciples. As Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's the state. And God has made the state responsible for governing society, for keeping order, for protecting life and property, and very sadly, for raising taxes. We heard it read earlier by Ruth. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. God has also given the state the power to punish crime and to take life when it is justified. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So the state has an authority. It has been given by God, and it's got a responsibility to defend us as citizens and to protect its innocent neighbors. It's a God-given authority to go to war and to use the law to compel its citizens to go to war, assuming the war is a just war. And we as Christians have the responsibility, therefore, to take up arms in response and go to war, assuming the war is a just war. But obviously people might object, right? Haven't you heard it said that what a Christian should pursue peace? Didn't Jesus tell you to turn the other cheek? Let's look at that passage, page 970. Page 970. <clears throat> Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, we don't have time to unpack it in detail, so I'll, I'll just make a few observations, and you can always come and ask me afterwards. Um, first of all, this is not a blanket principle that applies across all of life that Jesus is giving. He's giving a personal principle. Okay? Now, we know that for a few reasons. Firstly, we know that because Jesus tells his followers to arm themselves in defense, if appropriate. So turn to page 1058. 1058. This is Luke 22, verse 35. So they've returned from basically a mission journey. Some of the disciples, they've come back. And he's going to send them out again. And Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. A cloak was a very important garment in the New Testament era. It's how you kept dry and warm on bitterly cold nights. Sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So they were entering a crisis period. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So this is obviously a specific context for a very specific need. So you, you know, I can't take it as a blanket permit from Jesus to always walk around with a sword strapped to my side, much less a nine millimeter Glock. But nonetheless, he wouldn't be telling them to arm themselves if he expected them to always turn the other cheek. That's the point. And there are many other incidents as well. So Jesus uses force himself in John chapter 2. He sees that within the temple market area, there is basically insult upon insult being heaped upon God because the temple courts degenerate into being used as a market. So what does Jesus do? And you can see this in John 2 later if you look at it. He deliberately goes, he makes a whip out of cord, he returns, he gives a bunch of them a good thrashing, kicking over tables on the way, and he drives them out the market. Jesus Christ was no pacifist. He used force, but he used it when it was necessary and appropriate. In Acts 25, you see Paul defend himself in a court of law, and then even eventually appealing to Julius Caesar, uh, to Caesar which is how he ends up being taken to Rome. Those are all examples of not turning the other cheek. So how do we reconcile turn the other cheek with all of that behavior and all of those examples? Well, without spending too much time on the detail, as I said, when Jesus says turn the other cheek, he's laying down a principle for your personal relationships. He's not laying down a rule for the government. He's calling us as Christians to a fundamental principle of non-retaliation and not to respond by taking revenge. So often the best way to come overcome evil is by not resisting. Spurgeon once put it this way. He said we should be willing to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers, especially in the area of personal insult, which is what a backhanded slap to the right cheek would have been. It's an immense insult in the time and in that area. 
So if someone insults you, it's usually more effective to respond with kindness. If someone wrongly tries to cut you off on the motorway, it's usually best just to let it go. John Piper said, if we would learn these principles, our lives would be much more peaceful, and ironically, we would be vindicated more often. But anvils are not doormats, right? So it's entirely right to defend ourselves and our loved ones against aggression using the means legally available to us, just as when Jesus told his disciples, sell your cloak, buy a sword. And thirdly, it's therefore entirely right to take up arms to defend our country. Right? So the principle Jesus gives here, turn the other cheek, does not apply to government-sanctioned action. He's not denying the right of a government to defend its citizens or of individuals to fight in that defense. So never get your enemies mixed up. It's entirely consistent to love your enemy, okay, on the one hand, to love your enemy, to pray for them, to care for them, like the Samaritan did, to accept an insult from them, and then to shoot back if they're ever aiming a rifle at you on the battlefield. Just make sure you're quicker and more accurate. So principle one was, always pursue peace, but not at any price. Principle two, never get your enemies mixed up. And principle three, sometimes support war for the right reasons. Sometimes support war for the right reasons. Excuse the throat, I'm fighting a cold. Now, <clears throat> you may not know, but Christians and Christianity have had a clearly defined set of criteria for thousands of years, going all the way back to the Old Testament, to help us determine when and when not to support war. And those criteria were then refined over the centuries. And what we now have is we have a list of top 10 criteria known as just war theory. So, i.e., those principles which would apply to say, yes, this is a just war, let's proceed and support it. Now, just war theory gives you a grid, gives you a set of glasses, so you can look based on biblical principles, on principles of loving people, principles of loving life, loving truth, loving peace, loving justice, and you can take that set of spectacles and look at hard questions like, you know, should we support this war or not? Should we be fighting in Afghanistan or not? Whichever case. But 10 is a long list. You know, I can't concentrate beyond three anyway. So thank goodness for John Stott because he reduced the 10 to a list of three, which is very convenient. So he summarized that and enables us to look at them. So here are the three criteria. Firstly, the cause or the reason for the war must be righteous. So we could call this the why. Why are you going to war? What's your reason? Secondly, the means must be controlled. You can call this the how. How are you going to carry out this war? What are you going to do? And thirdly, the outcome must be predictable. And this is the what. So what's going to happen afterwards? What will the situation be? Now, we can't unpack all the principles which underlie these, but if we just kind of look at them in a little bit more detail, I hope what you'll realize is that what's underneath these is two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Okay? So, let's look at firstly, the cause must be righteous. This is the reason. This is why you're going to war. The things you're looking for are defense. So it's not aggression, it's not an expansionist policy, it's defensive. You're looking for justice. So it's an action to remedy injustice, or it's an action to protect the innocent. 
You're looking for in good intent. It's well intended. So it's not coming from, from wrong motives. It's coming from good motives. It's not coming from hatred or revenge. It's coming from a desire for something else. It's a last resort. There's been negotiation. There's been ultimatums. There's been failure for any of those to be met. And it's legitimate. It's legitimately authorized by the state, not just because some individual or some group wants to go to war. So declaring war because of the result of a rugby international is unfortunately illegitimate. <laughs> However tempting the thought might occasionally be. So that's the why. That's the cause. That's why you can go to war. Now the means. The means must be controlled. This is the how. So what we're talking about is no wanton or unnecessary violence. So for example, no killing just because it's convenient and easier to dispose of a group of prisoners of war than it is to house and accommodate them. It must be proportionate. So what's meant by that is the violence that you are going to inflict is proportionately less than what would happen if you didn't do that. So the ultimate gain in terms of life will outweigh the loss. And lastly, it's discriminate, so it's aimed at military targets. Sometimes that's very, very difficult, but that needs to be the intention. So that's the how. Now, the what. What will the outcome be? Do you have a reasonable prospect of victory? And this, to some extent, goes back to the first one, to the why, right? If you're doing it to ensure that you um, ward off an attack from a defensive posture, will that be effective or not? It goes back to the why and asks, is the why, the cause, the reason, going to be effectively addressed? So that's a very brief summary of what Christians should apply to, should apply when it comes to just war. The grid they should use to look at a particular instance. What, what's the reason? Why? How are you going to do it? What's the means? Are they legitimate? And what outcome are you really expecting from this? Why are you doing it? Now, just war theory helps you to make a good decision wisely, but if you'll excuse the pun, it isn't a silver bullet. Okay? It won't resolve all of the issues. And the devil sometimes, quite literally, is in the details. So let's look at an example. You're a Christian at the outset of the Second World War. Britain declares war on Germany. Your son or your dad or your brother get called up for national service, and they have to go. Do they and you support the war or not? Will be one of the thoughts that occur to you. Should he be a conscientious objector and refuse to fight, or go in as a non-combatant? So the why, was the cause righteous? Absolutely. The Nazis were aggressors committing atrocities, and going to war was essential to right those atrocities and for defensive purposes. So the why, the cause, was absolutely on. The how was the means that they planned to use. Were they proportionate? Yes, they were. The intention was initially very good. The execution was largely good. Was it always proportionate? No. And this is where you need to have constant monitoring. So to give you one example, Churchill and Roosevelt both condemned the Nazi bombings of cities where there were civilians. It was a strategy they employed. And they condemned it outright. They said, we would never do that. But they went back on their word. So the Allies carpet bombed Hamburg, Cologne, Berlin, and Dresden. And that's an action which was condemned by Bishop George Bell in the House of Lords. And he said, this 
Obliteration bombing is not a justifiable act of war, and to justify methods inhumane by, in themselves by arguments of expediency, because it's convenient, smacks of the Nazi philosophy that might is right. The number of people killed in the bombing of Dresden over two days is of a similar number to the number killed in the immediate death from the Nagasaki bomb. The what? Was the outcome of the war predictable? Was the outcome assured? Definitely not. So when Britain went to war, nobody was sure how this was all going to end. So fundamental question, was it right of Christians to support the Second World War? Yes, it was. Was it right to go and fight? Yes, it was. And the use of just war theory by the church just helped us take an appropriate stance toward the war and to understand and appreciate what would happen in that war and how to, how to respond to it. Another example, which I'm perhaps a little bit better qualified to comment on, is the situation in South Africa during the Cold War era in the 1970s and the 80s. Now, some of you will not remember this because you were but a figment of someone's imagination. <laughs> the South African government, <coughs> sorry, the South African government was fighting bush wars in South Africa on the Angolan, Mozambican, and on other borders and further up into Africa. And they were fighting against regional guerrilla armies who were funded by the USSR. Most of the time, they were actually fighting each other more than anything. So some wanted to topple the apartheid regime, which was a good motive. Some wanted power and territory from old tribal enemies, and this was too good an opportunity to let go. And some, especially those backed by the USSR, wanted the rich mineral and oil deposits, not to mention a strategic sea route around the coast. Frankly, it was a mess. So how do you decide what to do? How do Christians respond to being called up for two years national service, as we were, in that situation? And you had a very mixed response. So some felt it was right to refuse. I had friends who went into prison for four years as conscientious objectors. Some felt it was right to go, but strictly as non-combatants. And most Christians, including myself, felt that it was right to go and serve as required. Some of us was fortunate in that we never actually had to engage in combat. I still think I did the right thing, given the circumstances and given the information to hand. Most of my friends of color, most of my black friends, disagreed. Some of them agreed. Some of them volunteered and went into the army. So just war theory helped us in our intense debates in the evenings with friends after youth group about what are we going to do, because that was the conversation we had at our youth groups. Oh, someone's got his little brown envelope, the one with the window on. And uh, it helped us to go work our way through those debates, but again, it was no silver bullet. One last topic I have to mention is the Crusades, because this will lie at the back of anybody who accuses Christians of participating in war. Now, it's a huge topic, <laughs> and I'm not going to venture into those weeds right now. Um, now, a few things. One, it is right to deplore and reject the cruelty that happened in the Crusades. And if you read up on it, some of it was extreme. It would be wrong not to do that. 
but it is equally wrong to just buy into a kind of a 21st century Facebook-driven mass media perspective on the Crusades from a liberal media. It would be equally wrong to buy into that. So let me make just two points. Firstly, the Crusades were initiated as a response, not as a proactive strike by aggressive Christian regimes. They were a response. And they were a response to Islamic aggression. Now, this is Thomas Madden, who's a very good historian, and this is what he says on the topic. The Crusades to the East were in every way defensive wars. They were a direct response to Muslim aggression, an attempt to turn back or defend against Muslim conquests of Christian lands. Christians in the 11th century were not paranoid fanatics. Muslims really were gunning for them. When Muhammad was waging war against Mecca in the 7th century, Christianity was the dominant religion of power and wealth. And then Kevin DeYoung helpfully contextualizes it and gives us a helpful analogy. He said, for Christians in Europe at that time, it would have been as if Al-Qaeda sacked Washington, D.C. following 9-11, set up shop for bin Laden in the White House, and turned the Lincoln Memorial into a terrorist training center. It would be unthinkable, cowardly even, for no one to storm the city, liberate its captives, and return our nation's capital to its rightful owners. So that's the first important point. The Crusades were initially a response, initially. And that first crusade, unlike the others, was actually successful. They did liberate Jerusalem. The second important point is that the Crusades were carried out by some of your ancestors, by a European people in which there was no distinction between the religious and the irreligious. So there was, from a motivational point of view, there was a, a, a complex mixture of political motivation, of religious motivation, of financial motivation, and all the other factors that pop up when war appears. And not everyone who claimed the name Christian could be considered to truly be Christian. Because to be Christian was to be European in many respects. So we need to take pause and take stock before we take the, the atrocities that happened during the Crusades and lay them solely at the feet of the Christians and at the feet of Christ. You know, so Europeans were very different a thousand years ago. They fought for religion, they fought, fought for holy lands. The reasons for their war might be very wrong to us, might seem very wrong to us. But we fight for political reasons. We fight for democracy, and that would seem very wrong to them. Last comment from Madden. He says, it is easy enough for modern people to dismiss the Crusades as morally repugnant and cynically evil. Such judgments, however, tell us more about the observer than the observed. They are based on uniquely modern and therefore Western values. If from the safety of our modern world we are quick to condemn the medieval crusader, we should be mindful that he would be just as quick to condemn us. Our infinitely more destructive wars, waged for the sake of political and social ideologies, would, in his opinion, be lamentable wastes of human life. In both societies, the medieval and the modern, people fight for what is most dear to them. That is a fact of human nature that is not so changeable. So we have to deplore the cruelty of the Crusades. Some terrible things happened. But to just write them off as being completely wrong and down to re Christian religious fervor is naive, it's simplistic, and it's to completely misread history. Let's go on. 
So we have three principles. So we know we need to always pursue peace, but not at any price. We know we need to never get our enemies confused and mixed up. And we know that sometimes we must support war, but only for the right reasons. And we have just war theory and a grid to help us in that regard. But where does that leave us, us personally, individually, sat here today? Where does this leave you if you're, if you're the pacifist? You may be a Christian, you may not be a Christian, but if you're a pacifist, what does this mean? What about the complainant, the person who originally said the non, that I reject Christianity because Christians have supported war? Where does that leave him? What about the rest of us who are just trying to get on with life? Well, if you're a pacifist, and I have known a few genuine, sincere ones, then I'd say I understand your position, and I'd say you must pay attention to your conscience, but I would also say you need to realize your conscience can be misinformed, and it can be wrong. And I would say I must sincerely argue that you are fundamentally wrong, both in God's eyes and in the eyes of natural law. Firstly, we've seen that Jesus Christ was no pacifist. Secondly, if you're going to be consistent as a pacifist, then you must eliminate not only the military, but you must elim eliminate all government forces that use force to restrain evil. That means the police and the civil justice system. And we all know where that will go. And lastly, if there's a Hitler on the move to commit genocide and put people under tyranny, then surely it's fundamentally wrong not to oppose them using whatever possible means is legitimate. Maggie Thatcher said this, thinking about wars that she'd been involved in and approved. I said that war was a terrible evil, but there were worse things, including the extinction of all that one believed in. What about the complainant? What about the complainant? The person rejecting Christianity because Christians have supported wars. Well, I hope that you've, if one of them is here, if one of them is here, I hope what you've heard has helped clarify why, as Christians, we must sometimes support war, even if it's grudgingly. But I'd also say that it's important to think about the reason why that complaint is raised and to look at the root, just to dig down, right? Maybe you're a committed pacifist, I don't know. But maybe your critique of Christianity at root actually has more to do with your view of God himself. Because after all, who wants to face a God of justice who allows the use of force to punish evil on the final day of judgment? And if you can sweep the whole thing aside, then maybe you're okay. Who wants to face that God knowing that he might be very angry at your rebellion and rejection of him? Maybe that's the root problem. I wouldn't know, but I'd encourage you to look more carefully because he is a God of justice. He is a God of justice who will see that all evil does get its just desserts. But he's also a God who provided a solution at his cost for ultimate and complete peace. He's a gracious and a merciful God. And he will provi has provided a means to peace and reconciliation with himself if only you will put aside your throne and trust him. If it's eternal peace you're after, you're only going to find it in one place. And what about the Christian? What about the rest of us just called to be peacemakers? How do I do this? So, well, as I said, I think we need to distinguish between our personal individual enemies and our national enemies, number one. Number two, we need to accept it's right 
to accept insult and injury at times, but it's right at times to defend yourself. And number three, I would say that the challenge is in having the wisdom in knowing when to do which of those two things. But that I leave for you to explore later. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that you're a God of peace. Thank you that you've provided the ultimate solution for those of us who would bow the knee to you and that you have enabled peace and reconciliation between yourself and us and also between one another. We just pray, Lord, you would help us to see that, to understand it, and to bring those of us here who do not know you into that favored relationship. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.